Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling Business with me, Chris Kitchener. And me, Gareth Tennant. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders and organisations tick. And this week's podcast is brought to you once again on a frosty afternoon uh, by a steaming mug of hot coffee. Well, we're in, a, we're in a secret location, but I don't think it's giving too much away to say we're, we're in one of the coldest places in the country, yeah. so hot cup of tea again. Yeah, so disappointingly not alcohol fueled this time. So before we start, Chris, um, at the end of the last episode we recorded, um, we talked about the mission statement, don't be a dick. Uh, and we both agreed that that was a particularly good one, uh, as it covers a lot of bases uh, and it's full of common sense. However, we couldn't remember who it was, and I've since looked it up, and I just want to inform our listeners that it is, in fact, Huel, the producer of meal uh, replacements. Um, they don't sponsor this podcast. They have nothing to do with us, but uh, we do endorse their mission statement of Don't Be a Dick. So that's where that came from. In the last few weeks, we've been sort of talking about higher level concepts, strategy. We talked explicitly about values and missions and the kind of definitions around those things. Um, But I think you wanted to bring the conversation down this week to sort of the individual level uh, and to talk about what makes individuals tick um, and to start discussing that, really. Yeah, completely. And, And I think it's... I mean, as with all these conversations, they sort of link back on each other. But a lot of this is about what makes individuals, and by definition, as we talk about it, leaders and people running businesses effective. And it's a concept that um, over the last few years, I've thought about, and I don't know whether the term wrestle with, but it's something I've called personal narrative. And I am sure there are plenty of books where they have this same concept and called it something else. But it's this, it's this idea of how do people in your business perceive you and therefore how they react to you. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the sort of story of where all of this started because it was quite, it was one of those aha moments for me. And it was, I, I worked for a large organisation and I ran actually a number of teams. So, you know, quite senior, quite significant number of engineers that worked for me and the products that I was involved in. And around me, there were a number of exciting new projects that were coming up on a reasonably regular basis, as you would expect yeah. in a large tech company. And um, I couldn't understand why every time one of these projects came up, someone else was picked. Now, just before anyone's wondering and going, wait a minute, this sounds like a grudge conversation. Um, but, but it was interesting. I'm sure you've all been there when you say, well, hang on a minute. I, I work really hard. I think I've had some degree of success. I've demonstrated a number of skills and capabilities. What What's going on? And over time, I started... Actually, I went through the natural thing of being quite disappointed and sort of metaphorically waving my fist at the world at why didn't you understand my genius, which clearly <laughs> isn't genius. But But one day I had this sort of aha moment, which was it's not how I perceive myself. It's how others perceive me. Now... People listening to this, I would imagine you would say, well, that's blindingly obvious, Chris. But 
let me let me pose this question because I think this is really every time I ask someone about this, they look surprised because I think they haven't really thought about it, which is the question is this. If you pick three important people in your organization, whether it's the CEO, whether it's the head of engineering, whether I guess in the military, whether it's your immediate superior, whether it's your senior NCO, if they're standing in the bar talking about you to someone else and you're not there, what do they say about you? And I think that's such an interesting difference because I suspect what you'll find is they don't say the same things. Now, is it because they don't see your handsome good looks, your courage and skill? It's not that. When you say they don't say the same things, do you mean each of them don't say the same things or they don't say the same things that you would expect them to? Both. Right. Both. And this is, this is the really key thing. And I'll, Rather than sort of belabor this point, what I learned over the years is that when people meet you, they look through their own eyes and their own lens. So yeah. what they don't yeah. say is, hmm, I, I wonder what Kitchener's like and oh, he, look, he's done this. What they come into is with, I have a set of goals I have an agenda, I have values, and immediately as human beings, we think very carefully, is the person I'm talking to aligned to my goals and values? And then really importantly, do I believe this individual can directly impact my ability to be successful? And if you align with them, Mm. all of a sudden, things can start to happen. If they don't, they're often very pleasant, they're very nice, well done, keep doing that job, you fulfill that role. But that's not the same thing. So, I, I mean, I, I'm yeah. going to turn this back to you. Um, and I, I, by the way, I can talk about sort of how over the years I've thought about this and grown this. But have you had an experience where you expected to be put in a position to do a certain thing or a certain role? You didn't get it. And then over time you realised, why was that the case? Um, so I can't think off the top of my head of a specific incident where I think, you know, I didn't get a job or a role that I thought I was deserving of. or But certainly, I, since leaving the military and having sort of gone freelance um, and having to pitch for contracts and, and jobs, I am having to come to terms with the sort of frustration of, well, I'm pitching on jobs that I think I'm really, really good at. Uh, and anyone that's worked in the freelance world will know that, you know, more often than not you get rejected than you know get taken up and I think there is certainly a having to come to terms with the fact that as you're writing your PV or your pitch for the the work you know the person reading it isn't seeing it as you say through your lens through your understanding of experience so a line that says you've done a particular job is loaded with your preconceptions of why that's so important that that somebody else perhaps doesn't see so I, I certainly resonate with that I do think I want to push back slightly on your, I guess, generalisation that people have this idea that straight away they say, how can this person help me? Because I think that seems quite cynical. And there definitely are people like that, but I'm not sure that's ubiquitous. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you're talking about this, because when I, when I, I've talked about this concept a lot with people I've worked with and, and people I've sort of coached over the years... And one of the things I'm I'm very aware of as I discuss this it is the potential for this cynical view. But the second thing as well, which is, well, hang on a minute, this this sounds suspiciously like 
making the boss like you, telling the <laughs> boss things about it. And I, I want to make it very, very clear. I am sure there are people who do similar things for evil or for bad. <laughs> for me, this is about being effective. In other words, if I'm... And I, I'll take another example of working with a CEO. And the CEO... This was a number of years ago where I was not in the executive team, but I was just below. And the CEO had been told, look, Chris is a, a, an up-and-coming star. You should go talk to him. And he sat down, and I, I, I because I've done this before, I could recognise the look on my face, on his face, which was, I've, been, I've got to give you half an hour. I'm genuinely quite interested in what you've got to say, but I've got a lot of other things to be going on with. And so he said, well, what, what would you like to talk about today? And I immediately, I had a list of things in front of me, which I thought, oh, you're going to think these are really interesting and this is going to demonstrate what, what do I do. And my, my first response was, there's a bunch of stuff I can tell you which I don't think that's going to be really interesting. What is it you are working on? What problems have you got? And yeah. What is it that yeah. me or my organisation could help you solve? And when I did that, his eyes lit up and all of a sudden it stopped being sort of this, this odd conversation, very polite and it turned into something very valuable. But, but going back to your point about cynical view, I don't think it is. And so this isn't a cynical people walk in the room and say, I need to do this, and if you can't help me, I'll go. I think it's a natural, take the cynicism away. It's people are busy and people are trying to do things. People are getting on with their... People are getting on with their thing. And, you know, in, in this yeah. particular case, the CEO had walked into a meeting from his own executive meeting where he was told, we've got a problem... X, Y, and Z, I mean, whatever it might be, you know, we need to scale up how we support our customers and we can't increase our headcount to yeah. do that. And therefore, the moment I say, what's your problem? What, what do you do? Well, Chris, I've got this problem where as the business is growing, I can't just keep hiring people to support customers in a linear way. Oh, well, we can talk about that. Yeah. There's a bunch of things I can do from a product perspective that will help customers self-support themselves so it, it it's it's a very good point and it's a dangerous topic because it does sound <laughs> a bit like i want you to like me well, well i think the way the way i interpreted it when you first framed it it came across as either you know a, a shout for populism over in over you know integrity or everybody's machiavellian and people are all out for their own game and, and actually i think exploring that it it it's you know, self-evident, um, I think that you know, what you're actually saying is rationality is subjective and people you know, view problems, even if they're organisational problems, challenges, things that are going on, through their own experience base, through their own Absolutely. perception of what's happening. And, and I also... It's about empathy, isn't it, really? It, it's, it is massively about empathy. And, and actually, at the very heart of this... So you, you, it would be quite easy to sort of, well, okay, he's, he's talked about how, you know, he wants the boss to like him or the VP of engineering or whoever it might be. It isn't that. Actually, at the heart of it, even it's not about communication empathy. Actually, at its very heart is a, if you, if you want to say that there's a cynical thing, is my cynicism is around I have to be effective. Yes. And therefore, what is, what is the most direct route to be as effective as I can. And so in this particular case, for the CEO to support myself, my team, and my organization, he has to understand where we can add value to his goals. And so actually it's all about 
being effective. And if I don't do that, and if I just tell him things that seem mildly interesting to me, not going to be effective. If yeah. I do this, this helps me be effective. But I've I've found it. The thing that intrigues me about it is it's so deceptively simple. And again, I am sure there are people listening to this going, well, of course I know what my insert person you, you talk to wants. Yeah. I would I would deny that, or at least I would challenge that. Yeah. And I, I, I've done this over the last couple of months with a couple of people. And I literally said, write down what you think they would say about you. And in both cases, they effectively wrote down what they wanted that person to think about them, yeah. rather than what the person actually thought about them. So I, I thought that was a really... Yeah, I, I think that's, um, that's probably very current. I think I agree with you on that. And I think in probably a, a, another podcast, we're going to get into talking about bias uh, and how that frames people's decision-making, organisational bias and, and heuristics and all of that good stuff. Um, and I think this relates very much to that because, of course, the way you think other people think is based on your own experience, your own biases, and there's a relationship to how much you think other people think like you based on how much you think they are like you. And that's really interesting. I think also what I'm struck by when you talk about it is you talk about it very much as a follower talking up to leaders. Yeah. But in theory... This could be flipped on its head, and it could be a leadership empathy. Well, I, it's, it's funny as we were talking about it, and I haven't thought about it like this as much. Which is, I think there's guidance in there for leaders to how to talk to their people. Which yes. is, let me tell you what is important to me. Let me tell you the problems I'm trying to solve. Actually, yes, please tell me what you're doing. There's a there's a there's an element of value and politeness and empathy about it but actually encouraging people because that's often what I find is people walk in and say, what do you want to talk about? It yeah. sort of says, yeah. actually what they're saying is, I don't really need to talk to you at the moment. I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of politely interested in no more than that. But I, mm. the, the, there's, there's another, what I love when we talk about these things is I think there's some, there's some real truths that, that are really simple and, and sort of staring us in the face. So this was about when you are talking to other people in your organization, whether up, sideways, or even down, yeah. there is value in looking through their eyes. Here's the offshoot of that concept. And so, um, and I'd love to, love to find out whether this is your world or not. So uh, I am, uh, over the years, I've become king of PowerPoint presentations. We'll talk about communication I, I another time. I'm pretty good with PowerPoint. Are you? Well, we'll, 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 we'll get on to that. But PowerPoint competition. A PowerPoint off, <laughs> as it were. I was laughed at because I introduced some animation to help tell a story and everyone got very agitated about it. But anyway, but the thing about, the thing about presentations is, here, here's another story, which is, th these are all <clears throat> probably not very interesting, but true stories, is I rem I've, I can actually picture the meeting room it was in when I was working in Seattle. And um, I had been asked by someone more senior to me, it was, a, it was a director, I think, and I was a group product manager. And they had said, can you give me an update on what you're, what, what you, you know, the product and what you're working on? And so I literally wrote a slide deck which told them a story about what was going on. And at, by the end of the meeting, I'd only got through three slides and we'd talked about a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. And there was a bit of me that was thinking, 
what a fool he hadn't actually bothered to listen to the important messages I was telling him and I'm pretty sure he thought this guy's an idiot he's not telling me anything interesting going back to this point about looking through people's eyes I cannot tell you how many times I have thankfully in my more junior life I'm getting a little bit better at now is when someone asks you for a report or from information I'm now getting much better at stopping and saying okay put their glasses on for a second why are they asking this? Yes. What actually do they want? Because everyone's very lazy. Like, that particular case was brilliant. So said, give me an update on the thing. Yeah. But actually, that wasn't a complete statement. I, well, what, what problem are you trying to solve? And so, again, it's this looking through the lens. Oh, actually, I realise there's a bunch of tactical stuff which has no interest to you. You're far more interested on the impact on the rest of the organisation and the funding, whatever it might be. Yeah that becomes a really important thing. So maybe this is the, the, the personal narrative idea, I think, can be very, very useful for individuals. But actually, I think there's a there's an even sort of more overarching topic of when was the last time you genuinely, genuinely, when you interacted again, and it's really important not just to say when you're interacting up, but up, down, sideways, when was the last time you said, okay, I wonder what their world looks like right now? Yeah. What information is most valuable to a person who's looking through that lens? And it might be that there's information that they're blind to, and when I tell them that's really valuable, but it might be there's a ton of stuff which frankly just isn't important to them. That's fascinating because um, I, was, I was lecturing at a university um, earlier this week and talking about how you ask for information um, as an organisation rather than as an individual um, and there was a very really rich di discussion about the need for following up on the initial ask, clarifying that question, understanding the purpose behind it, what they're going to do with that information uh, and then more importantly perhaps following up after you've provided that information to say did that answer your question, was it useful, did even if it was the right answer to the right question, did it solve your problem? Did you? And, and I think there's a definite relationship there to, and as we're talking about it, I'm seeing this sort of in my head, to a, a dare's balls. I've got to be careful about talking about uh, a gentleman's balls on this programme, but a dare's balls, if you're not familiar, is, is a leadership model, um, and it's three overlapping circles, it's a Venn diagram, of team, task, and individual. Um, and what Adair effectively says is leadership is about balancing yeah. the requirements of the individual, the people that you are leading, the task that the organisation needs to solve in the here and now, and the organisation and the integrity of the organisation and the culture around it and everything else. And I think for me, I've always kind of, I've liked that as a very simplistic model, but I've always seen the task, the team and the individual as a balance of three discrete priorities and therefore, you know, when the deadline is pushing you might increase the pressure on an individual but you can't keep that up for the long term. But I'm starting to see that actually this is they're not discrete entities that need to be balanced off each other. It's not a zero sum game. They're completely related because it's about not only empathising and understanding what else is going on in somebody's life, but it's also about how they interpret information. Well, there's so here's here's a 
often when I talk to people about some of these concepts and you sort of say, well, you know, in this particular case I gave earlier, someone said, give me an update and then I go and do the presentation and it doesn't work well and it turns out I have this aha moment and I say, ah, they didn't give me enough information. Exactly what mm. you were saying, which by the way I think is... I think that, write that down, which is when you're asked for some information or a perspective, test truly what they're looking for and why and how. But but you get the next thing, it's like, oh, terrible people. Oh, why didn't they give me, why didn't they, why didn't that person tell me what they wanted? Mm. And I think, again, I've thought quite a lot about this over the years, which is, and this is a sort of a, a human trait, which is, we are hardwired to take shortcuts yes. at yeah. every possible step. And, and and that is a good thing. It is the shortcut that said, that bush rustled, run, it's probably a tiger, I'm about to be eaten. Rather than, hmm, that bush rustled, I wonder what it is. But I, I, I think understanding that we take shortcuts is the first step to sort of step back and say, when is it appropriate for me to take a shortcut and when is it not? Because yes, if yeah, every definitely. communication is a full three-paragraph discussion of the context, you'll not get anywhere because people will stop listening to you and move on. But it's just the secret, and the, I don't think there's an I don't think there's an algorithm or a training course for this, which is the secret is to know when to take the shortcut. Yeah. When to point at someone and say, "Go do this thing." And I'm not going to give you context because that is not what is required at this point. And actually, speed is more important versus I want you to go do this thing, but let me give you the context first and actually give you more of an opportunity to solve it. So I think there's there's a, there's that thing that we all have to be very careful of. Shortcuts get us killed. Whether it's in the military, literally, or whether it's in business, it's really, really interesting. When And you mm. hear it when people say, well, I didn't want you to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, what you're telling me, you didn't tell me, tell me properly. So shortcuts is such an interesting trait for us to think about. And again, from a leadership perspective, you know, coming back to that, the, the more senior you are, the more experienced you are, and so, therefore, you feel more comfortable taking shortcuts because you've been here before. Potentially, yeah. But also, the more senior you are, often the faster you have to make decisions because you're multitasking different things. So, I yeah. would argue that this is this idea of not being thoughtful about when to take and not take shortcuts is useful. But mm. as you get more senior, it almost becomes even more important because when you get it wrong, either way, it's actually a lot more painful. That's really interesting. I, for me, the term shortcuts leaps straight back to heuristics. So uh, heuristics are those shortcuts that you take without even recognising it. Your brain does it in its system one of thinking that Daniel Kahneman talks about, but the subconscious brain, um, because your brain has evolved to yeah. interpret information in a certain way. Um, and I think we can we can get into that in another discussion, but it's fascinating because what you said about knowing when to take shortcuts is, is vital. It's definitely, when we talk about complexity and dealing with situations we're not comfortable with, you know, having that first step of you know categorizing the type of problem and understanding that your know, gut instinct in this instance or experience in this instance is less valued or less valid um, is really important and i think we can explore that later on um but yeah the the idea of 
narrative and, and recognising other people have a personal narrative and it's going to be, you know, that blurring of their view of the team, the task and the individual, I think is fascinating and it's a really important way of looking at the the challenge of, of leading people and the challenge of followership. Can, um, I, can I tell you one more story? Yeah, Because there's there's a few people... Even a few people in the military that I've shared this concept with, and, and every time I, I see them, they sort of wink and say personal narrative, that apparently it's been useful for them in their, their job. When you start to talk about this idea of personal narrative, how people see you through their eyes and with their agenda, the next question is, how can you change that narrative? Well, okay, mm. in, in, in going back to the very original question, why was it... I was not being offered these exciting projects. It was, I believe, could be wrong, but I believe it was because I was a safe pair of hands. I was in charge of something that was important, that couldn't be broken, had complexity. We were working with a foreign team and I had a great relationship with them. I think the reason why I wasn't given these opportunities wasn't because they didn't think I could do them. I think to some degree it was more because they wanted me to keep doing the thing that they already wanted me I've to keep doing I've definitely had that happen to me. It's, a, it's yeah. a, such an interesting problem. So this idea of how do you change your narrative is a, is a really interesting one. Now, in, in your own words, yeah. let's talk about that in more detail a different time. But I mm. want to tell a story because I'm not going to talk about how you change your narrative. But I want to tell you a story about why it might be easier than you might think to change your narrative okay. with someone. So this, this goes back to my halcyon days when I was in uniform. And in the Royal Navy, I was um, when I was commissioned, when I was a, a young officer at Dartmouth, I was um, what they call a midshipman in the Royal Navy. And you, you was a Marine Well, never that, a midi. <laughs> and a midshipman is this slightly odd thing in the Royal Navy. As in, what it meant was I joined the Royal Navy without a degree. And so that, that's the lowest officer you can be. But the lads kind of don't see midshipmen around. And so yeah. I, I would regularly have people say, am I supposed to salute you or not? I don't know. Anyway, I was this midshipman. I had these sort of strange white tabs on my collars rather than... A, if people are familiar with the Royal Navy, you see lots of gold rings. I didn't have any gold rings. They're the posh 11-year-old running around ships you they know, are, in they, Hornblower novels. That is exactly yeah. right. And in the modern Royal Navy, it's the slightly <laughs> less posh... 17 year olds just out of school who don't have a degree i don't even know whether they still have midshipmen anymore anyway the point being was i was this this, this junior officer and to some degree had this narrative that i was this most junior officer it was it was at one level again slightly frustrating anyway i was training uh, on a squadron to be a navigator for helicopters and i had a uh, you were given a, effectively a training officer, someone who was responsible for your well-being, and broadly you reported into them. And um, at, at the time, and this is my nature, as you can probably tell, I love asking questions. I'm curious. Mm. This is all very interesting. At times, that can be highly valuable and highly, uh, you know, people like that kind of thing. Turns out at that stage in the military, I was just the idiot that kept asking questions. So not 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 a hugely, it, I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't hugely positive. And then this magical moment in my naval career arrived, which I think was two years after I joined. And through the power of the calendar, 
I threw away my white tabs and I put my first gold, well, actually my only gold ring on my, thing. I became a sub-lieutenant purely based on time in the military. Yeah, so promotion, but automatic promotion. Correct, automatic yeah. promotion. Okay. And, and, and latterly in the military it goes to merit, but at this stage, yes. early stage, yeah, it was absolutely. more absolutely. And the same thing happened to me. And, and I, would, I remembered, I, I sat down with this particular officer who was uh, looked after me on the squadron, and he said, well, Kitchener, I've got to tell you I'm impressed. And I looked around and thought, sorry, who's he talking to here? <laughs> he said... Since you put your, you know, since you were promoted to sub-lieutenant, I've looked at you and I've been really impressed by your maturity and how you've grown into it. Now, apart from the fact this was literally two weeks ago, <laughs> and I looked and thought, well, hang on a minute, I'm not an idiot. Nothing has changed. And then it occurred to me, his role is to bring young officers and help them be successful on whatever course yeah. they're on. And so therefore... Somehow he wanted to believe that he was helping me become a better officer. Mm. And so actually it wasn't that somehow magically in two weeks I'd become more mature and a better officer. It was almost that he he had created an environment where more likely than not I was going to do a better job. Now, that, that was a particularly silly example. And in that particular case, I wasn't particularly impressed over the years about him saying that because actually I realised it was an empty statement. I realised he was just saying it because he felt good about saying it. But what was interesting to me was if you now turn it into whether it's, um, you know, a business situation, actually... Most people, their bosses, do want their people to grow. They, it's a reflection. You know, there's many people who want their, their, their team to grow and yep. succeed. And for many people, the team growing and succeeding is a reflection on them. So this point about going back to this personal narrative, it turns out the wins are in our favor to turn around and say to people, actually, we, I I want, I'm going to present to you a new way to think about me that I think will be more valuable for you, will be more valuable for me, and therefore will help me and by indirectly useful to you. So yeah. I, 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 it was funny. That that story niggled me for such a long time. Mm. It shouldn't have done because someone was saying something good about me, <laughs> yeah. but it was just that it was so empty. But now I look at it as a very positive thing because it turns out Actually, it's more reason than you might think to change that perception about how you think about them. In that way, it was a pretty silly one. But actually, there are lots of practical ways you can do that. And the first one is to engage with them. What's yeah. important to you? What's valuable to you? Yeah, it's quite interesting because you can definitely see there's, a, there's an incentive based on the role of that you know, senior officer you know, to report on you getting better. Yeah. And I think... It, there's probably an interesting question about you know, if you turn up and you're the the best midshipman out of the bunch, you know, is it harder for you know, that senior officer to to then have to? Are you are you, you're not going to be a threat to them, of course, because there, there is a significant yeah. experience difference. But but are they going to see almost a negative aspect of that because it's going to be harder to show their ability to bring you on and I demonstrate what they've done I, I, I think it's really interesting and again you, you we, we're, we're drifting around but I think this is the whole point of this sort of discussion or these kinds of discussions which is 
I think naturally any business identifies their A players. Yeah. Dreadful. I, I actually <laughs> hate that term, even though I have to use it on a regular basis. The risk is that's the focus. And so the people who mm. don't think of the A players, particularly the ones just below the A players, maybe don't get the focus. And the, 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 the reason why I think this is interesting is, as students of military history that we are, I, I hear again and again about how this particular admiral, this particular general, was his lowest in the class, was terrible. Mm. Everyone thought this guy was was a loser. And then all of a sudden, when it turned when it when push comes to shove, actually it turns out they're brilliant at their job. And I do wonder whether there's this element of the higher you get in the sort of the pecking order, the more shortcuts people take about how they perceive about you, how they think about you, and yeah, and and the risk that then they don't think about other people as well. Yeah, and I'm constantly getting emails from organisations that say, "Yeah, pay for this certification, and then you can be, you know, a chartered board member and be, or a um, a non-executive director of various companies." And and actually, all you're doing is getting a piece of paper. You haven't actually changed at all. But people make those shortcuts, don't they? But I suppose that, that is what qualifications are. They're a, a reference point that indicates a level of experience that you don't perhaps have time to explore. So it is a shortcut. I, 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 think, that I, I think both of those things mm. are true, as in there, are, there is a, a valid role, actually, more than that, an important role for qualifications, an important role for titles, which helps us. But, but could, you can game the system. But you can game the yeah. system. I mean, I, I live in a world where... As product manager, titles are quite important. Yeah, they 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 mean a level of status, mm. and and I, I I I'm pretty sure once you, it's like a ratchet. Once you reach a level, you don't ever have to go back. You can never go back. And yeah. so that what, what, for example, yeah, once okay. you're a director of, in fact, I'll, I'll pick me as an example. Which is interesting because, of course, the job the operating environment, that can all change. And therefore, all of that experience that everybody has used to base you on those promotions, you know, the foundations of that are completely less valid because oh. the job title, the role, you know, has changed. But like you say, it's very difficult to step back. In my role, my mm. world, you can be a startup with three people and call yourself a vice president of product management. Yeah. Do the job for three years and you've got three years of experience as a vice president of project ma product management. Yeah. Well, hang on a minute. That's not the same as someone who's got three years experience and was previously a director and previously some previous yeah. that. So, yeah. I mean, the, the thing about all of this is there isn't, I, th I think we talked about this in a previous episode about my my weakness for not necessarily reading as many <laughs> books and you know being as scholarly as I should do. I think one of the reasons, and again to reiterate, that's not something I'm proud of. But it turns out there's no algorithms for this stuff. There's no simple path of if X is true and Y is true, you're a genius or you're yeah, brilliant yeah. or successful. In every single case that we've talked about. Um, there are so many factors. It turns out you just have to practice, work hard, be curious. And if yeah. those things are true, maybe, maybe the, the takeaway is it's the values that you hold which are going to get you through rather than some of these other ethereal things like qualifications, how someone thinks about me today and things like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think 
there's a there's something forming here about whether that narrative is a uh, a manifest a manifestation of your underlying values, or whether it's a projection of what you want people to believe about you. And I suspect it's probably a bit of both, and it depends how Machiavellian you are. It does. You you can use I think these concepts I've seen. I I see people in life, and I think you could use this for evil. You you, you and in fact <laughs> well, I think people, I don't know. people fake, do. Fake it till you make people, it. People people um, fake it. Yeah. But I think I think um, I I think the sort of the the perception that is the truest about you and and tells them the truth is the one that that becomes really valuable the thing about yeah, this is the yeah. thing about this is with with the statement of fake it till you make it so let, let let's sort of turn this on its head someone listens to this and says i can get a promotion out of this i'm going to go to the ceo mm. and say what problems have you got i'm going to do this around, i'm going to make them think i'm a wonderful that will literally only get you so far yeah at, at some point you're going to get tripped up at some point the mask will slip or at some point your values will conflict with what you're trying to do yeah and it will fail so i i have two stories i suppose that um touch on a couple of the points you make so i'm interested in what you said about how did you describe them the the a players yes so the british <laughs> army have a, a term called where talent endures and they ascribe this to people that do particularly well at, at staff college. And staff college is a course that you go on at a midpoint. There's several different staff colleges, but your first one, midpoint in your career, you're kind of going into that middle management, maybe into sort of senior management roles. And you go and do this academic course, and then they grade you. And very similarly, it's very singular. So where talent endures is judged off one particular thing, yeah. and that's your ability to command. And we'll talk about how they define that later in a different episode. But the point is, if you don't do well at that bit, you don't get very high in the pecking order. And it's particularly interesting when you talk about you know, a diverse and changing environment, because people who have really valuable skills, but aren't perhaps at the leading edge of command, whatever that is, you end up being just deemed straight away. They, people take shortcuts about who they are um, and therefore they're less likely to promote, they're less likely to get good yeah. jobs and, and all of these kind of things. And there are literally jobs in the military, or certainly in the army, where they have the label, or certainly used to, where talented jaws tagged to them. So if you didn't get this particular grade, you're not going to get these jobs. And I, I ended up in a situation where the opposite happened. So I had, up until getting to staff college, sort of specialised in quite a niche area, quite a technical area to some extent. Um, and all the jobs I wanted to do going on, I wanted to keep doing that. Um, and because I did well enough at the command aspect uh, of, of my staff college course, I was told that the jobs that I'd been hoping to get and the, sort of the career I could have started to map out and discuss with my career managers was no longer available because I've hit this particular <laughs> you, know, you can't be successful because you're too good yeah I mean it, <laughs> or you fit this particular you, yeah because yeah. you've done well at this very niche well this very specific singular trait we're not interested in anything else you know you're going to have to go on to do do this kind of job and and I remember having this conversation with my career manager where they were saying well because you've you're, you've demonstrated a level of command 
you're going to now need to go and do a close combat company command. So this is the point where you're starting to command probably 150 to 200 people. And it's your first proper command since you last did troop command where you had sort of 30 or 40 people. So it's quite a big thing. And I wanted to command a, a certain... A certain subunit in the military um, because it had a really interesting role and they were saying well you can't do that now you're going to have to give a subunit command of a close combat company because that's what all the people do when they you know are in line to get promoted to go on to be unit commanders and brigadiers who are brigade commanders and and i know that out of my peer group you know, it gets harder and harder and harder to compete for these things and i am definitely not in the running to be the brigade commander of three commando brigade there are people who are far better at the right attributes to do that and and but i had a particular set of skills and a particular passion and interest that i had kind of mapped out my own path and you know, if I'd stayed in the military and wanted to try and push to get to Brigadier and, and beyond, there is a particular route that I could see myself doing that people had sort of agreed with and said, yeah, actually, you're carving this niche. And, and suddenly, because I ticked a box, you know, the, the, the way people viewed me had completely changed. And I think the second thing that happened at a similar time was because I'd, I did a, a master's degree in a particular subject that meant I was not only quite experienced and, and quite knowledgeable about something that a lot of people in the military aren't, I also had a, a qualification to back that up, um, which gave me a bit of confidence at talking uh, in conferences and workshops. And, and I was starting to get invited to meetings about these subjects. Um, and when I went in uniform as a major in the Royal Marines, um, people would say, really interesting points. Um, could you write that up in a two-page paper for me, Gareth, and, and give it to my chief of staff? And these would be brigadiers and, and, and two-star generals and stuff. Um, and, and I'd do that and never hear anything again. And there, was, there were occasions where, because I'd been working in London or, or doing other things, I would go to these meetings not in uniform, and so in smart casual, uh, smart casual clothes, and the same sorts of people would say, that's really interesting, we should have coffee. And it was all to do with the way that I was dressed and therefore the way people assumed who I was, what units or what organisations I'd come from and the way I was treated what, what, and nothing changed. What, but what, what a fabulous link back to the original thing of personal narrative. The moment someone saw you in uniform, took the shortcut, made an yeah. assumption about what you were, what you knew, how they would treat you. The moment you changed that because you were out of uniform, it, it changed it. You now are aligned to something I want to do. You are someone who can help me achieve it and change it. So yeah. I, I think that's fantastic. I, I mean, the, the, the reason why I wanted to talk about this today was because I'm really passionate about how individuals can be effective and successful this is this has been really i think useful for me as a concept useful for people i know and, and for people i'm coaching at a very sort of individual human you know we were team talking about concepts like team task leadership but what i think the thing that strikes me is that the the reason why we wanted to have these conversations in the first place was how these things are linked 
perhaps even in ways that people don't think about every day. So we, one of the previous conversations, we've talked about command and leadership and success and mission and these kinds of concepts. Think about what we've talked about today. Think about how many landmines there are in there. Think about how easy it is to get this wrong. How easy mm. it is to not understand what skills you have on your team. How easy it is to not be able to be effective because of the way people perceive you. All of these things we've talked about. We haven't and, talked and about I, mission I, at all. But I think but, also equally important how you can do it to other people. Yes, and You're completely. judging other but, people's abilities and my, and based my, on their... And my okay, point is yeah. to this. We haven't talked about the mission, whatever it no, is. No. So we haven't even got to the bit that says, are you any good at making a plan? Are you any good at leading people? We haven't got to any of that. Actually, there's this this huge area that we can get wrong, yeah. put the wrong people in the wrong place for the wrong reason at the wrong time, or the right people in the right place for the reason at the right time, before we even get to the hard stuff. And I think that this this is probably why all of this sort of started when we sort of first sat down and, and talking about this concept, which is it turns out that I I'm not convinced we spend as much time talking about this kind of stuff because I think if you went and, and, and talked to people and said, tell me how to make a great strategy or a great plan, I would imagine there are many, many books which tell you all about how to do brilliant and many, many books which tell you about things that worked and therefore the strategy they used will be the strategy for six feet. There's mm. loads of that. <laughs> but when you start talking about some of these quite pedestrian ideas of how people perceive you, how you can be effective. Did you get the job you wanted? I think people sort of poo-poo that and say, well, we'll let you do that. I'm going to do grand strategy. And right. when I come up with my brilliant strategy, it'll work. No, no. The point is, if you don't get this other stuff right, mm. your grand strategy might not even get off the line. And, I'll, and in fact, I'll turn it around. And, and one day, we must try and find some experts on this about Ukraine. And I, I, I know this sort of bringing left field Ukraine. There seems to me to be a very real world of people who everything they do matters now. It is yeah. life or yeah. death. Yeah. I wonder whether how they deal with some of this stuff because I'm pretty sure they haven't got people out there in on the front line who've spent all their lives with PowerPoint decks and come up with grand strategy. How do you get a bunch of cold people who were students last year to actually be successful? How do you pick who's going to be well, your Well, let's do that. MCA? Let's do an episode in the future on uh, leadership, command, and management lessons from, from Ukraine. I think that's brilliant. Well, look, um, I, I, think, I think we've... Um, I've I've just about beaten to death my personal narrative. <laughs> you'll, no, any, I think that was really useful. Really anyone, useful. anyone who ever meets me in person, you just have to say the word personal narrative and it's like a clockwork right. duck <laughs> and I'll waddle off and talk about this. But for the moment, I think that's about all for this episode. Thank you for joining us. And if you like what you heard, please tell your friends. We'd, we'd also love to have you join the conversation with your stories or ideas, because frankly, I only have so many of these and they run out. I was a bit quickly. worried at the point where you talked about your stories being boring stories. I was like, that Chris isn't going to work in a podcast. Well, I've, OK, we're, 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 we're reaching the end of my interesting stories. Um, although we still do have to tell the story about me accidentally flying into another country. I think we'll, we'll that, save that for another day. That could be the eternal. Yes. We'll save that for another day. Anyway, um, we'd love to have you join the conversation with stories ideas or indeed suggestions for topics uh, uh, you can follow us uh, suggest a future topic or ask us a question on uh, the twitter 
um, assuming it still exists when you listen to this, which I yeah. think it will. I think it will. <laughs> and we're at Battling with Biz, and Biz is with a Z, though. But for now, though, uh, goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.